Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brett. Welcome. There's always one, right? There's always one. And he's an elder as well. Oh, fourth week in Advent. I was saying this morning to someone that a couple of weeks ago it felt like Christmas and then all of a sudden it's like busy and not so much anymore. So I'm hoping I'm able to slow down this next few days. But four weeks ago or three weekends ago, I asked a question. Does anyone remember what that question was? Nativity. No. Are you in Herod's side? Or... <laughs> Close. You, know, you do all this work and no one listens and no one remembers. <laughs> the question was, if you could be any character in the nativity, what character would you be? There's a few pennies dropping right now. You did ya? You said nativity. <laughs> and I gave you a few potential Choices. Are you a shepherd declaring the good news? Are you a wise man rushing to worship Jesus? Do you feel a bit like Simeon or Anna waiting in anticipation? Are you potentially one of the religious elite too scared or entrenched in your religion to actually join the wise men in their worship. And that first week when I spoke, we learned about another character of Herod. And I suggested potentially that we might have a bit of Herod in us, that we are threatened by Jesus, the way that he interrupts our lives and disrupts our power, but that Jesus also reveals himself as our absolute king. And we cannot be neutral bystanders when it comes to him. We have a choice. And the last couple of weeks, so two weeks ago, we learnt about Elizabeth and Zechariah. That through their story, we learnt that God, or that we serve a God who takes away our shame and gives us wholeness. But that reversal of shame and imputation of wholeness is done in a way that reflects the glory of God. That although it is a gift for us, it's actually not ours to hold. It's ours to then reflect. Last week, we learned about Mary. We learnt that hearing the Christmas story and stepping into the Christmas story are not the same thing. That we need to participate in God's grand narrative. But if we do that, our lives will be reordered, reorientated and redirected. Now, do you see any overarching themes, 
potentially that have been coming through. Now, those of us who have spoken over this Advent series, like, we didn't get together and go, this is what we're going to talk about. As always, we either, you know, we're walking through a passage or we're working through something and we allow the text to speak for itself. And what has jumped out at me this last Advent, well, this last three weeks at least anyway, is that we have a choice. That we are either in or we are out. But if you are in, you cannot simply hear the story. You need to step into it completely. And if you do that, then the Lord that we serve will bring us healing and wholeness. But it is not about us. Our lives are to reflect the glory of God. Now today, we're going to be looking at another character, as John said. I'm sorry, as Dave said. (laughs) John the Baptist. (laughs) And what we're going to learn about him today actually falls completely in line with the themes that we've been covering and hearing about over the last three weeks. I didn't design it that way, it's just how it falls. Now, all four Gospels speak about John, but mostly about his adult life, when he's, you know, in the Jordan, wearing, you know, baptising, wearing crazy clothes and eating stupid food. (laughs) But I don't actually think we often put him into the context of what was said about John, what was declared over him, and how he lived his life in relation to that declaration. And if that then says anything to us and about us. So that's where I'm hoping we're going to go today. Now this morning I'm going to ask you another question. And it's not a bait and switch like I sort of did a few weeks ago. This question's actually going to be the question. What if those who follow Jesus, are called to live like John the Baptist. Just let that sink in for a sec. Now, I'm not suggesting that you all go buy, like, camel hair clothing and go out and eat locusts in the desert. That's not what the question I'm asking here. But what if we are called to prioritise our lives like he did. John realised that he had a purpose and he put aside his wants and needs to fulfil that purpose. This is what John the Baptist did. He recognised that he was not the main character in his own story. He recognised that the main character is actually the Messiah. And just like 
all great novels that we read, we follow the action and all of the supporting characters either help or hinder the mission of the main character. What if your life is not about you? Now, I was listening to an interview or something. I don't even know how I was listening to this person because it's not someone I would normally listen to. It was some singer. <laughs> and the other day, oh, well, it was who it was. I'm not going to say who was speaking. I don't know how it came up. But anyway, but they were giving life advice to 20-somethings. And they said this. The hardest lesson a young person has to learn is that you are not the main character in everybody's story. You are the main character in your own, but a secondary character in everybody else's. But I'm actually going to kick that can a bit further down the road. As a Christian, we are on this earth to glorify God. And if you are the main character in your story, then everything you do is evaluated by its effect on you. How did it help you? How did it hinder you? Did you get what you deserved? But if Jesus is the main character of your story, then everything that happens, you'll ask how can this contribute to his story? What if our lives as followers of Jesus was to play our role? But it is to be played in the bigger context of redemptive history and not in the small picture of our individual wants and needs. What if, now everyone put their hand up before and said they were a Christian, that I sort of saw. So we're all in. We say we are. We say we are. You put your hand up, you're in, so you say. This question, what if when we become followers of Christ, we are to echo the words of John the Baptist as we find in, chap in John chapter 3, verse 30, that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Our text this morning, now it would potentially be familiar, but no one listens and you don't remember anyway, so you never know, we'll see how we go. <laughs> I'm joking. Okay. Come on. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 13. The angel said to him, so this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Zechariah. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you. And many will rejoice at his birth, 
For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous that make ready, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Now this is pretty much the text that Aaron used a couple of weeks ago, but we're going to shift away from the context of Zechariah and Elizabeth and actually just zone in on what angel, the angel Gabriel was saying. And the first thing we need to note about the scope of the angel Gabriel's message is that it begins with the attention on Zechariah and Elizabeth, that their prayers have been answered and they will have their long-awaited son. And like every birth, there will be joy and delight for the parents. That's first-time parents. Second-time parents know what they're getting into. <laughs> so we'll see. But the angel's message quickly shifts away from the parents to the wider vision of John's mission for Israel that many will rejoice. And we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at that. But some of the questions we're going to ask is that the declarations that the angel had over John's life, did John actually live them out? And fortunately for us, there's enough in the text to know whether sort of he did or he didn't. So verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Now chapter, oh, verse 15 acts as a description of John, and it sort of gives us three sort of things. The first one is that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now ultimately we can't know that. But we get a confirmation of that. And the confirmation comes from Jesus himself. Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, that John is the greatest among human beings, but all participants in God's kingdom will surpass him in honour. So John's greatness is confirmed by Jesus. Now, the angel Gabriel said the same thing about Jesus in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, that Jesus will be great. But Jesus is great without qualification. Luke here uses parallel language to closely link John and Jesus together, but the terms he uses are relative. John will be great in the sight of the Lord, but Jesus will be greater. John is greatest among human beings, but those who are in the kingdom of God and declare Jesus as Lord will have a greater honour. Do you see the hierarchy of language that Luke is using here? The other thing he says about John is that he will not drink wine or beer. 
Now, to not drink wine or beer is associated with separation from a normal life for a divine task. And this could be temporary, um, or it, like for a specific period, or it could be for life. Now, complete abstinence from wine and other alcohol is, extra, is extraordinary in the biblical world. Now, we know from the Old Testament that priests were to abstain from alcohol during their term of service in the temple. And abstinence was also integral to those who had taken a Nazarite vow. If you don't know what a Nazarite vow is, I encourage you to go read Numbers chapter 6. Um, but this was a vow of consecration before the Lord. John was called to a lifelong consecration, much like that of Samson. It says that Samson was to be a Nazarite to God from birth, that he was consecrated to the service of the Lord for life. Samson was also instrumental in Israel's deliverance and he was empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. So when we start to look at the parallels that he's drawing between a life of someone who's consecrated for life to God and what we know about people who have been consecrated for life to God is that the mission is instrumental in the deliverance of, of the people and they do so through the empowerment of the Spirit. The angel's declaration is that John is set apart by God even before his conception for a divine task. And Jesus again confirms whether John did this or not. In Luke chapter 7, verse 33, now he's talking in a different context, but it refers back to John, and Jesus says this, For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. So we're two for two right now, that John actually started to live out the call on his life that was declared over him before he was even conceived. The final description we're given is that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this declaration about the work of the Holy Spirit is the first amongst many in the books of Luke and Acts. And it is the Spirit that plays a dominant role in the events of the birth story. It highlights the intrusion of God's divine purpose in human affairs and adds to the heightened sense of eschatological fulfilment. So how it is all going to come at the end. Now Luke's phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, occurs repeatedly in both Luke and Acts, and it can refer to two different things. The first, it can refer to a special dispensation of the Spirit for a specific or particular task or role. Or it can mean a continuous state of being filled and empowered by the Spirit. With John, that's what we're looking at here. 
that he was continually being empowered and directed by the Spirit even before his birth. And we go, well, yeah, of course, because we have the Holy Spirit and we pray and the Spirit speaks, you know. For us looking back at that, it seems normal. But if you actually take it from a sense of looking where they were, looking forward, the idea that someone was empowered by the Holy Spirit and directed by them was extremely rare. The Holy Spirit often only spoke through one person to the people. Prophet, king, priest. So don't read back into that and go, well, the Holy Spirit, like Pentecost hasn't happened yet. Verses 16 and 17. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteousness of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. We doing okay? Very quiet. I don't need a lot of feedback, but... <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> right notes. No, that's okay. I'm not speaking for a while after this. Now, if verse 15 provides a description of John, verses 16 and 17 define his role in God's redemptive history. So what is John's task? John is a prophet affecting repentance on the part of God's people. John will turn Israel to its Lord and he will go before the Lord so the people are prepared for the Lord's advent. Now John is presented as a precursor and preparer but both of these roles are subordinate to his primary mission which is of calling Israel to repentance. He will turn many, doesn't say all. But the main question is when they say that, it's like, well, did he? Did he turn many? Luke chapter 3, again, gives us a good indication of sort of how he was going. All of John's KPIs that he was given in chapter 1 are sort of either ticked or not in chapter 3. <laughs> there were crowds who came to see him and be baptised by him. And Luke chapter 3, verse 12 to 14 tells us that tax collectors and soldiers were asking his advice and coming to him. So not even, it wasn't only the Israelites who were coming. It was those on the fringes. It was those who weren't considered holy or pure. And Luke chapter 3 verse 18 tells us that John proclaimed the good news to the people. Now, do we have the capacity to save people? No. It's not our job. 
We have the responsibility to declare the gospel. That's what our job is. To live a life that reflects the glory of God. To declare his righteousness and his holiness and his mercy. But ultimately, we are not responsible for the choices and the path of other people. So we can look at that and go, well, does he turn it, people? Maybe, maybe not. But he certainly had the opportunity and he certainly lived that out, that he proclaimed the gospel or the good news to the people. Now, verse 17 is the kicker here. There's a lot going on in verse 17. Luke alludes to Malachi several times and calls on the prophet Elijah. So what is Luke saying about John here? Because I could actually have made almost a sermon series on just verse 17. So we're going to miss some. We're not going to hit it all because I simply can't. So what does he mean? This is Luke that I'm talking about, by his reference to Elijah and the turning of fathers' hearts. Now, fathers in the Roman world are often not described in a positive way. They ruled the roost. They are often characterised as being cruel. Um, remember we, when we were going through Ephesians, I, I did a study on... Roman households and household structure and it's just like horrific of what some of the family structures were like and that was considered normal. So Luke here is actually placing fathers in the company of the disobedient and children in the company of the obedient or of the righteous. Now turning of the hearts of the fathers can be reflective of a couple of things. Firstly, our Heavenly Father is merciful. Luke chapter 6, 36 tells us that. And human fathers who are in the kingdom are to be reflective of this. John's mission is to call those who do not reflect God's characteristics to repent and to change their behaviour. Now, clearly, destructive family practices were significant enough to mention. Luke also draws a lot from the book of Malachi, or Malachi, if you're Italian. Now, remember, Zachariah and Elizabeth were a priestly couple. Which means that John will be the son of a priestly couple. Which means that he actually inherits a priestly vocation. Luke alludes, like I said, quite a lot to Malachi and specifically Malachi chapter 2 verses 5 to 7. Let's just have a quick look at that. I don't have it up for you on the screens, I'm sorry. So this is the Lord speaking. And he's talking about a priest. My covenant 
with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should desire instruction from his mouth because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. Luke is drawing parallels to this character. That he is to... turn many from their iniquity. And Malachi is wisdom literature, and wisdom literature allusions that continue in the book of Luke when he writes in verse 17 of the disobedient gaining understanding. In wisdom literature and the wisdom tradition, Gaining understanding signifies the fulfilment of the law. So when we start to look at what Luke is talking about John here, is that not only is he calling the people to repentance, not only is he reflecting the character of God, not only is he living out someone who is in relationship with God and being led by the Spirit, not only is he doing all of these things, but in order to do these things, he is actually fulfilling the law. And for the Israelites, that is a huge thing. The angel also says that John is to be anointed with the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, this is where we could go down an extremely deep hole. That would be fun. And really interesting, but I've got to sort of skim the top. I'm sorry. Elisha also received the spirit of Elijah, and to be identified as this is significant. On this basis, John would have been anticipated to be a miracle-working prophet. And we see again the parallels between John and Jesus. Luke describes Jesus in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. John anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Luke also understood the work of the Spirit as being the basis for prophetic speech and boldness in proclaiming the Word of God. I don't think I need to refer to Luke chapter 3 again to understand that that was happening. John is shown in each of the Gospels to be bold in proclaiming the Word of God. And in the end, that's actually what got him killed. As we read these verses and look into them a bit more, we realise that they echo the book of Malachi quite a lot. And we can see that the text is immersed in end-time anticipation, eschatological stuff. Now, we need to remember that we can't read Jesus back into this yet. 
Jesus hasn't happened yet. John, this is happening before Jesus was born. We have to wait a bit for the advent of the Messiah to be realised. But for now, the promise revolves around the direct intervention of the Lord God himself, whose coming will bring about the long-awaited dominion of God, that the period of waiting is drawing to a close. God's on the move. God hasn't spoken or moved in 400 years to this point. And what it's saying to the people is this, that final preparations are necessary. And John will have a central prophetic role in proclaiming the looming advent of the Lord. And he's doing that to ready the people. And by doing that, he's calling them to repent. That's the economy that's going on here. If you read through Luke chapter 3, and most of the other Gospels, it becomes readily apparent that John's life, his mission, his ministry, fulfil the declaration of the angel Gabriel. John's life decreased so that Jesus' life can increase. So I'm going to ask you the question again. What if those who follow Jesus are called to live like John the Baptist. That our lives aren't about us. Now we read further on in Luke when Jesus calls his disciples. He has an interaction with them and ultimately in some sort of form he says, follow me. And what's their response? They drop everything. They leave everything to follow him. Everything they inherited from their family, their name, their occupation, their worldly future, they stop pursuing. And their lives are now about following the Messiah. John the Baptist did this from birth. That everything was put on hold to fulfill his calling. Now, I don't know about you. I can't claim to have done that. What if we as Christians have lived our lives completely back to front and upside down? What if work and family, fun and hobbies, money and safety are supposed to be subordinate to our pursuit of Christ? What if Christ is more than simply a concept that we hear about on Sundays? My challenge for everyone here today is this. 
Don't just leave here this morning and let these questions not follow you home. My challenge for you today is to actually go home and sit before the Lord in prayer and do a stock take of your lives and allow the Lord to speak. If Jesus is the main character of your story, then everything that happens, you'll ask, how can this contribute to his story? The point is not how things benefit you, but how they help you tell Jesus' story. In riches, riches or in poverty, in prosperity or in pain, the question is this. How can I use this to glorify God and amplify the gospel? When something bad happens, you may say, well, this wasn't good for me. But how can this point people to the gospel? Now, some of you might ask him, why would anyone ever do that? Why would you make anyone else the, the main character of your own story. Here's why. Because one day, the curtain on your life will close. The credits will roll. And if the story was all about you, then it's over. But if your story is bound up in and surrendered to Jesus' story, then even after you leave this earth, you'll get to participate and rejoice in a story that goes on forever. And it always ends in victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we surrender to you now. Father, I pray that you speak and minister to your people here this morning. That you turn cold and lukewarm hearts towards you this morning. That those who are sitting on the fringes of understanding who you are and what your message is, Father, I pray that you minister to them. Father, I pray right now and we confess that we have not lived the lives that we have been called to live. That we have worshipped idols and that we have placed things that are not important above the glory of your name. And Father, for doing that now we repent and we ask for your forgiveness and we thank you that it is so readily given. Father, I pray that you flood this building this morning with your grace and your mercy. That you are not a God who punishes or is harsh with us, Lord, but you are a God who is forever calling us into relationship and you do it so softly. 
Father, I pray this morning that our eyes are opened and our ears are undulled to the truth of your word. And that as they are, we are able to start and begin to reflect your glory and the advent of your glorious Son. Father, we give you all the praise for our life and every breath that we take. Forgive us that we think our lives are more important and the scurrying that we do, Father, than the fact that our lives are about you and your greatness. In Jesus' name I pray this morning. Amen.